This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Crioso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast. My name is Jonathan, and this week, episode 170, Such Miserable Huts. Last time we spoke of the economy and society in Wales during this period of early modern Europe, this was a time where major leaps forward were being made in exploration, in production, and in warfare, which were measuring against the day-to-day living of the majority of the population. Among that change in existence are the changes that come from how people lived in their daily lives and how their families would become defined during this period. Families during this era are changing from previous notions of extended families, of elders controlling and running how a family works, how it's treated, and uh, the basic day-to-day of how everyone is brought up and dealt with as family units changes dramatically during this period. Over the Tudor and Stuart monarchs, life of the family becomes much more focused on what we would consider now the nuclear family. Life now revolved around parents and children until such time as the children went off to create families of their own. This certainly would have had similarities to today. Illness, and we'll talk about that in further detail later, had created situations where families were smaller, and the amounts of children living to adulthood across Europe in this period meant that families would largely consist of two to four children that would survive past youth. The main living place for most of the population was not the brick Tudor-style homes with their combination of fashionable chimneys, many rooms and halls, and brick everywhere. The reality for most of the people in Wales was described by T.C. Smoot in commenting on the housing in Scotland around the same time, saying that the houses of the poor were such miserable huts as never I beheld, men, women, and children pigged together in poor mouseholds of mud, heath, and some such-like matter. Welsh cottages were not formally designed. Obviously, they were made for and to be used by those that needed them, but they were done in ways that they might have windows, they might not. They might have basic outside access, and even the place where you put your door would change depending on where you lived in the country be at the front, the side, all of those kind of things would change culturally. These clom cottages became standard for housing in later periods of the 17th century. We have evidence of them certainly from then. Clom is a Nordic word meaning from earth or from mud. The building would start with low foundations of stone and then layers of mud, clay, and straw would be put down 
in various layers, creating walls that were between four to five feet thick with little more than five feet in height with a thatched roof on top. In Wales, cloms were a mixture of clay and fiber, however. Horse hair and lamb's wool were often mixed in as well. The roof was thatched with wheat and straw with a base coat of gorse and turf. This creation and addition of animal wool and hair would then help with the overall insulation of the house, but also had the side effect, apparently, in some cases of leaving the house looking a little furry. Then the outer walls were covered with lime wash to help protect the house from damage from the elements. Oak crooks, sometimes taken from broken ships in the bay or sometimes just from major planks of wood that were lying around. And they would be used to help create the roof and to both keep it together and to act as a frame for the building. Often these cottages would also include a wooden loft where the family would sleep and likely the elevation would help with warmth in colder days due to the rising heat from the hearth and also to keep the rain and other things that would probably slide into the building from necessarily getting into everything. Due to their construction style and eventual construction changes during the Industrial Revolution, most of these houses would fall into disuse and would, over time, easily fall into ruin, joining back with the ground that they came from. And various portions of the house would, of course, fall to pieces over the time period. There was many notations about people who ended up living with their roof ripped off or having basically decomposed around this person and them just living in the elements, depending on how rich or elderly the person was. Some of these problems would be continual for them. Few examples of these buildings remain in Wales because, of course, of this problem with them decomposing so relatively easily. And even though they were common for a very long time, you can only see some that have been rebuilt and restructured now. Most of the poor would have little furnishings or household goods. Most of their dishes were wooden, showing how even in this period, very few clay pots, plates, or anything else made of like a porcelain were used by the poor. They were typically only by those that could afford to A, have them, but B, also afford to replace them should they break. Obviously with wood, it's a whole lot easier to replace a wooden cup or bowl if you could find local sources for it than to try and recreate some sort of clay bowl or pot or the more complex and more difficult version of porcelain, which would come into vogue with the rich over this period. And... Obviously, if a wooden cup or bowl was broken, it wasn't the hardship that the other would be. Sleeping arrangements were typically on straw beds, beds being a loose term because in some situations it was straw on a floor or just on, you know, elevated planks. So you ended up with a situation where that straw would become littered across the floor of the house. Uh, it would then carry in anything that you brought in from outside, would get all over it. Uh, obviously, bugs and other things would get in there and corrupt both them and the person sleeping on them. And obviously, there wasn't 
necessarily, like I said, beds. So there wasn't necessarily, it was more like, I I guess, like a camping structure when you slept because you wouldn't have a spot to go in that would be specifically yours necessarily, or, you know, you'd be sleeping in a group rather than in your own individual space because of course there are no rooms so you're in a one-room building and all of that creates its own level of issues something we'll go into further in a bit typically what poor people did to have and create some thing worth passing on would either be animals or tools for their trades or in some cases, metal pots or pans that may have been kicking around. Either they've acquired f- through some reason or means, or likely they were passed down from f- previous generations. These would then become almost like family heirlooms, would be passed on to next generations down. And all of that would keep them around because, of course, these items wouldn't decompose, rust, or have any major issues with them. Because, of course, they'd be cared for, they'd be treated with respect, and thus you wouldn't have these other problems that we'd have in a more disposable economy. And like I said, most of these would then get passed on to later relatives until such time as they did actually just wear out. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Those that could afford to or worked in areas where they had the ability to farm would have small plots of land to help feed themselves. They could 
be those who do so with outright owned land or people who would rent the land as a tenant, usually have someone who is richer, like a noble or a gentry, who controlled the area similar to the medieval period. A rural poor farmer who secured what they called a copyhold of the land he tilled paid an annual rent, which could then pass on that rent of that land onto either his family members, should he pass away, or even effectively resell them to other people to assume that rental. Now, neither of those things were done for free. And of course, the landlord generally would also have additions to this rental contract based on entry fines that meant that if you sold it to someone else or even inheriting it, you would still have to pay an additional allotment of money on top of the rent, almost like a damage deposit, but it's a damage deposit you never get back. And, uh, this would, of course, be based on the whims of the landlord as to how much that was, and it would create insecurity in the relationship between the tenant and the landlord because the concern of opportunities that would be created to generate more revenue for the landlord uh, would be exploitable and trust would not be very high, I would think, in those circumstances. Over the early modern period, the movement for the development of demarcation of land or enclosures, as it's sometimes referred to, meant that property got linked to a particular landlord or landholder who then had the ability to now mark where that property existed. Much like we do in modern times, you have an actual line that shows where your property is marked out on mapping, and then you create that enclosure by putting a fence up. So thus, you protect your privacy, you protect your property, and in that way, it creates this ability to own this land that obviously shows where your land begins and ends. Of course, what this means is, is then that particular land is only used by the landholder and cannot be used by anyone else. This legislation came down from the parliament during the 16th and 17th centuries and was seen as the beginning of the end for communal farming. Small shared plots of land which allowed laborers, among others, to still have access to fields to grow their own food suddenly started to disappear in this circumstance. This meant that as farmers and small landholders struggling with their own share basically got into a pulling contest against those of the landless poor who did not either have the capacity or financial ability to rent or own land, be it because they were in rural areas but didn't have the money, or in some cases in urban environments, which meant that they did not have access to land in order to grow their own food, to do their own thing. Obviously, that would be less likely in Wales because at this point there were no cities in Wales. But even in the towns and villages, this was becoming an issue. Day laborers, artificers, and servants of various types now found themselves relegated to the landless poor, unable to feed themselves on their own due to no longer having consistent access to places to grow food. Having access to communal gardens had been one way to make up for this loss, but 
With the extension of property boundaries and the enclosures, this became impossible, as I mentioned earlier. These laborers spent their days in hard grinding work on farms, mines, and in areas that were both long, grinding, and generally unwanted positions. They would get respite for lunch, but six days a week they were spent in toil. About 25 days a year, everyone got holidays, or more proper term, holy days, off. This, along with Sundays, allowed some respite from the daily sun-up, sundown work, much like what would happen in both centuries before and in the later half of the Industrial Era until midway through the Victorian period, where there started to be consideration about what the position of child labor should be and shouldn't be, everyone had to contribute to help make ends meet. Landless people made less earnings than they did in the 14th century. In practical terms, the poor were truly becoming poorer. This is likely why these groups were more susceptible to either religious or economic change. Imagine being a poor man who must work with lime all day. And one day, some person comes along and says, hey, there's this land in a faraway place that you can have your for your very own for free. All you have to do is spend a few years working for the local landholder to pay off the cost of travel to such a place, and then you'll get this land that you can make your own for you and your family. It's no surprise that colonization of the New World would carry interest for those ambitious enough or desperate enough to make their way to a foreign world to try their luck. Also, preachers from various religions talking about being saved in the kingdom of heaven as a poor person, and this concept that the rich and poor would be the same in the sight of God, thus there would be no level above, would be a soothing lesson for those in need. Now let's talk about illness at home. Illness was a constant problem as it is to a degree now. Without modern medication, vaccinations, and pills, or even things such as medical and physical health rehabilitation to assist families, they would have to rely on a very different solution to a growing problem. The family had to prepare for any number of difficulties, ailments, injuries, and mental or physical deterioration or death, all of which could happen at any point in the life of a family member. And when you have no real doctors or medical practitioners that could be relied upon, you find yourself looking to neighbors, people who have practical experience in taking care of the sick and infirm, to pass on their knowledge and hopefully to give you something that could work. In one case, Gervais Markham in 1615 published an advice book for English women to use to their advantage in raising families. He thought women specifically, obviously of a certain class, would have the education to read his books and so should take in his instructions. He begins not only with the instruction for inward virtues of the mind, but also for the general knowledges, both in physique and surgery, with plain approved medicines for health of the household and also the extraction of excellent oils for these purposes. Physic was considered by Markham to be one of the most principal virtues which doth belong to our English housewife. 
Accordingly, it was necessary for her to have a physical kind of knowledge. It was important then to know, in quotes, how to administer many wholesome receipts or medicines for the good of their healths, as well to prevent the first occasion of sickness, as to take away the effects and evil of the same when it hath made seizure of the body. Illness in this era is very similar to previous ones. It was not just a physical one, but also a spiritual one. If you were sick in body, it likely meant you were sick in mind and spirit as well. He would include not only just instructions, but also recipes for various types of remedies to stave off various types of illnesses. Obviously, the poorer you are in life, the more likely it was you would suffer from ailments and death, and also, as mentioned in previous episodes, the less likely that you were literate, thus you couldn't read this grandiose instruction book to help you get to grips on how to deal with illnesses. Epidemics, poor harvest, would lead, of course, to starvation, and inflation created worsening living conditions. The houses that most of the poor lived in were cold, dark, damp, and liable to have six or seven people living in close confines in a single room. Disease would then spread through the animals and the straw that acted as their beds. They would then become infested with lice and other insects that would pass on all of these various diseases. And of course, clean drinking water and proper sanitation was not the norm in this era. In urban towns, the state of sanitation would become so bad that the Cardiff government legislated the removal of dunghills outside of houses, which of course leads to questions of a different sort as to why they were there in the first place. With all this in mind, what was available to medical culture in Wales, and what could you do about it? In a rural and conservative Wales, it is largely dependent upon your religious beliefs, your network of people you have contact with, and who you talk to, and how educated you were in how you would end up dealing with these things. There was no formal physician training in Wales at this period of time, as that would not even happen until the 19th century, when universities expanded into Wales for the first time. Licensed practitioners were almost non-existent during early modern Europe in Wales, and to be fair, weren't common around the rest of Britain at the time either. Though most trained physicians of the period were not exactly in the same category of those even a couple of hundred years later, in early modern medicine, the ancient Greeks loomed large. And as a part of what they understood, they positioned the idea of how the body worked based on various influences, both physical and spiritual, known as humors. One of the key solutions, as they saw it, to fix these humors when they were out of balance was through purging. This would then get rid of the bad thing and input more good things on top of it. Some of these are fairly famous. Of them, just to mention a couple, is bloodletting and enemas. Uh, you'd have to imagine in people who were suffering from dehydration or starvation, either of those probably kills them, or at the very least makes them severely ill. 
Wales had likely not formalized to the degree that it would have been in other regions of Europe where these practitioners were more common. Another even less grounded ideal was an appeal to astrology. The magical world that we would now likely scoff at was deeply ingrained in a society from curses to superstitions that were a whole host of things that could affect your life balance and medical health. On top of all these medical ideas and understandings came Christianity to offer its own take on why people got sick. Welsh Methodist preacher Philip Henry took comfort in people who faced death stoically or with joy. The last moments of Anne Rees, as an example, showed a woman who was behaved herself very lovely and told me in her last few hours before she died that she hoped for salvation from God's mercy. Reflecting on this, Harris wrote that the Lord prepared me for death and judgment because he saw both the young and old carried away to another world unobserved by anyone but him. Consistently keeping company with the dying and dead could actually have affected the health of the ministers. Welsh Methodists were particularly prone to depressive illness due to their intensive introspection and concentration upon their own failings and weaknesses when dealing with those who were in terminal situations. Philip Henry reported his unease at having attended three dying parishioners within a few days in January 1651. Mrs. Sarah Savage, daughter of Philip Henry, was quick to seek hidden meaning in her symptoms. In 1691, she was all day at home, having gotten ill cold in her head. Clearly feeling ill, she fretted that her heart, in quotes, was a little let out in love and praise of my Redeemer, but reassured herself that this was, in quotes, but a fit and soon off again. Sounds a bit like she was cursing God about being sick, but that's just my interpretation of it, to be fair. There was a false idea that children were treated as disposable, or at least exhibiting too much love to them in their lives would make it difficult with how many died young. But this argument has obviously been proven false, and fairly easily so. As an example, going back to our Methodist preacher, in 1663, Henry visited a local household where a child was ill with convulsions and fits. Henry said, I went to see him, and oh, what evil there is in the sin that produces such effects on poor little innocent ones. With a troubled conscience, he reflected, If this be done to ye, green tree, what shall be done to the dry? Far from stoic resolve, people questioned their relationship to deity due to the death of children and questioned whether there were they were to blame due to their own faults. Sin and vice, much like when it was the focus of their own ills, could be seen as the root cause of the sickness of the era, where the understanding and origins of these things were still very far off. And so a lot of times you would have various religious leadership and people seeing within these illnesses and sicknesses that they had to do with their own lack of preparation for the coming of God or for their own sins creating them. Uh, at one point, there's discussions about, you know, with this sin, the way to cure your illness is to do this kind of thing. And so there was all sorts of definitions of what caused certain sicknesses. 
But of course, when you got to a point where a sickness would happen to someone who was perceived as being righteous and holy, what then? That became, of course, part of the questioning that would happen later as we move into the Enlightenment and later on into the Industrial Age, where there's a lot of separation between medical discoveries and former understandings and the starting of questioning and examining of various ideas and concepts. But interestingly enough, as you look into it, Wales was one of those places where these kind of things kept up for quite a long time after the fact, whereas many other societies started to move away from these magical or religious solutions to things, Wales continued for much longer to continue to hold to those kind of ideals, some contending specifically that they would continue into the 20th century. So it's, it's interesting to see how all of this affects the family life, how they have to deal with all of these changes and constant struggles as you don't have steady food, steady health, where you have massive problems of sanitation, of clean water, of constant supplies of various types of food that balance a diet. All of these things are not there at this point. We're still far away from a mercantile system that allows for that. So the day-to-day living of people, especially the three-quarters of the population in Wales that basically live at the poverty line in this point in time, are affecting their day-to-day lives in ways that we wouldn't fully understand now. Certainly not to the same extent when you have a social safety net that helps protect you from the worst consequences of some things. And uh, with that, if uh, you would like to speak to me or talk to me any further, have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can talk to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Also, just FYI, I should say we're putting these audio podcasts up onto YouTube as part of an effort to try and expand our audience a bit. So if you would like to pass it on for people who like to listen to podcasts via YouTube, you can do that at uh, youtube.com forward slash distractions media. They are going up on a playlist there. And with all that, one other thing I should add is I'd like to thank all of those of you who are my patrons who help to fund this research project that we are doing. And I hope that I am continuing to offer you guys something that you have value from. And uh, I look forward to talking to you all again next time. Until then, take care. Have a great day. Goodbye. a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.